Welcome to Fire Headlines, where we cover the hottest topics in fire service news. I'm your host, Samantha Didion, and today I am joined by the panel, Chief Bob Horton and Chief Jeff Buchanan. Our discussion this week is about a case from Colorado where two paramedics were found guilty in the death of Elijah McLean. This case is from 2019 when McLean was stopped by police, detained, put in a chokehold, and the paramedics on scene injected him with a powerful sedative. Bob, can you help walk us through some of the nuts and bolts of this case to the best of your knowledge? Sure, Samantha. Thank you very much for that lead in. And, you know, the fire service, the country at large is talking about this case. Very appropriate that we address it here on Fire Headlines. And there's so much to really unpack. Let me lead in by saying two things I'm, I'm not going to do. I'm not going to give a legal analysis because I'm not a lawyer and I don't know. you know, in terms of the implications of what is homicide or what isn't. So I'm not, we're not, I'm not going to get into that for sure. Um, and certainly not going to take it through the lens of a, of the medical necessity. I'm going to talk about some experience as a paramedic and how uh, I thought about different cases. Uh, but I don't know the specifics of that. And I just want to lead in with limitations is I don't know the facts of the case. I've read only what I was able to access on the news and various news stories and, you know, take that for what it's worth in the news. But I do want to uncouple the situation because the situation that occurred in Colorado is not unlike others that happen across the streets in the in the entire United States. And I do want to pull the case apart a little bit. What appears or at least is being suggested in the articles that I'm reading is that the uh, Elijah was under detainment by law enforcement. Communication was occurring between law enforcement and the paramedics which led to a, a treatment modality by these paramedics on Elijah, which included a, a sedation for excited delirium is what they were calling it. And the, the subsequent consequences, as I read from the coroner's report, suggested that the ketamine administration for sedation led to the death of Elijah. Jeff, is that your kind of kind of take on it? Or did you, you know, pulling apart what you understood to be kind of the factual basis? Is that kind of how you understood it? Exactly the way I'm understanding it. We're tracking. It seems that, I mean, from like the the timeline, Samantha, as I understood it is, you know, charges weren't brought after this had happened. It'd been like an, uh, some time and that there was some public pressure seemingly in Colorado that something needed to be done, that five public servants were then later charged. And what I pulled out of one of these articles that I have a lot of curiosity about, so I can't speak intelligently to the to the facts again of this. But my curiosity is, is that the coroner, the medical examiner, kind of later implied something that led to these charges. And uh, I want to speak as a experienced juror in a medical malpractice case that led to death. Like that's my expertise of the legal system is I was on a jury for a medical malpractice case, which is an exciting experience. So I'm thinking about this like as a juror, what, you know, what evidence would need to be presented to me to reach this, to reach this verdict. And that was my curiosity is what changed from the time medical examination was done to this later com comment, if that's in fact true, that changed the medical examiner's mind. And I can see why people would be 
concerned that it was some kind of social or political pressure, which is what some of the comments have been uh, that I've seen out in the in social media. But let me get back to some of the more specifics. And as I want to pull this, this case apart, there are two things that I want to really highlight about this case that stood out in my mind. We have a challenge of, you know, conflict at the boundaries is what I call it. And when you start to see areas of conflict at all through public administration, but this is very specific to uh, the practice in the field of emergency responses. This is what I'm calling the boundary here, this intersection between a law enforcement response and a medical response. Because there's a lot of clarity about how we, we approach a call that is purely medical or fire department related. And then there's a lot of clarity about calls that are just law enforcement. But these calls that intersect at the boundaries becomes a, a little bit of a challenge. And if you read some of the comments in uh, the articles from the fire chief who addressed this publicly, and I thought he did so well, but spoke to this idea in their protocols about kind of who's in charge, Jeff. And you can remember, you know, a, a long debates over years, probably unsettled about who's in charge of a particular incident at a, at a particularly given time. Now, Let's accept for a second that this is excited delirium. I don't know that it is, but let's just assume for a second or any case that's an excited delirium patient. That is you know, an opportunity for this element of conflict An excited delirium is, you know, somebody is in this, this sort of catatonic extreme state, unconscious to their own awareness, uh, uh, extreme strength. And you read some of that in the testimony of the, of uh, not the testimony, but the articles that are covering what the paramedics were suggesting in their own defense is these were signs and symptoms we were experiencing, which led us to the protocol that said the ketamine would be an appropriate uh, drug of choice. I had just left the field as a paramedic when ketamine came into our pharmaceutical, our formulary. So I wasn't well, I'm not well up on ketamine and its administration, although I understand the, the intent of a sedation, a, a sedative drug for somebody who's in that state. And these paramedics tried to make that case in front of this jury about um, not only is the the lives at risk of the of the paramedics and or the law enforcement officers who are trying to manage this this person their their life is at their own risk because they're they're really in a in a state of of uh, without being in control. That's different than somebody who is just enraged and fighting law enforcement. That's different. But there are similarities in how they may present. And that's what's that's what's difficult to tease out and why it's got a lot of firefighters and paramedics concerned about split second decision making and how and when to start to treat patients who are at this boundary between a law enforcement risk and a medical one and how we manage that going forward. So, number one, conflict at the boundary. And how we manage that leads me to kind of point number two that I wanted to pull apart and hear Jeff's thoughts on this is we know that our decisions can be biased and I'm using biased in the decision-making context by information that primes our thinking. I was a paramedic preceptor for, for a number of years, uh, just about every paramedic that came out of school and was under my watch as a, as a preceptor fell victim to this exact same priming effect. And this was coming through the dispatch center. So dispatch center, they process the information, the call gets coded as something and gets dispatched out to the crew. And then there's, there's run notes and a new paramedic undoubtedly reads these run notes and forms an image and a picture of what the scene is like and what the situation is when they arrive on scene. 
let's assume for a second, the information is a diabetic emergency. And when that paramedic shows up on scene, they are laser focused on a diabetic problem only to find out later through assessment that it may not in fact be a diabetic problem at all. And so many times that new paramedic is so focused on diabetic emergencies, they miss everything else that it could be. And part of my job as the preceptor was to get them to zoom out and say, all right, you know, you've got a sense of some of these objective facts. You know, you have a person who's 65, you know, the person's female. This is information is reported through the dispatch center. You know, there's an altered level of consciousness. You start running differential diagnosis by doing your further ob objective tests. I won't get into much more detail on it. This is the point that I'm making is it could be many things besides what it is that it came in dispatched as an undoubtedly new paramedics zoomed in on what they were told by the dispatch centers. This is the problem. There's good research out that suggests the priming effects on the law enforcement side to be prevalent. Meaning there, this particular study talked about the likelihood of an officer involved shooting increased when dispatch center had shared with that officer responding about the gun information about the gun. And I'm not getting the study fully, fully right. So I, I don't want to give it too much time, but this idea of information that's being planted in the brain, that's, that's leading us to the subsequent decision-making is an area that we just need to be mindful. Like we're all, we're all sort of victim to that. That is, that is how we think because we use heuristics, shortcuts to help us with decision-making. And this is a shortcut information that how we're primed, how, how it's framed in our mind when we get there. So whether it's from the dispatch center or these responders who show up on scene are being told something by law enforcement can color in your mind, what the situation, how it's presenting itself. And you don't do an assessment from start to finish the way that we've been taught. This case is highlighting where those challenges. So you got this conflict between a, a medical and a police call. You've got information coming from law enforcement that's being used by paramedics to make determination about what their condition is because law saw this, therefore it was that. And there was even some information that they, they think they could have used the paramedics in the articles I read that law enforcement didn't give them like a chokehold prior to their arrival. Uh, that may have been something to alter their level of consciousness. So I'm just kind of trying to pull apart. What do we know about a typical call that a, the paramedics would arrive on scene with law enforcement engaging a suspect? Because that's how we, we are. That's what they are when we arrive on scene because law enforcement has made, made that clear to us. And then how do we assess that patient going forward with as much clarity as we possibly can? That's what I see happening here. I, I oh, well, let me leave it at that. Let's hear from Jeff for a minute and then I'll share some other. Well, first of all, I love the way I, I, will, I love the way you're framing this, Bob, because that's a that's a truism that I don't know that the, the general public really understands. We have this great relationship with the law enforcement, but there are intersections that are ambiguous at best. And I, it, it takes me back to an experience that I had. This was on a criminal scene. This was. This, you know, as a paramedic, we are called in to pronounce people dead, right? That's one of the things that we do. And we have certain assessments that we have to do in order to, to come to that conclusion. Well, in this particular case, the police officers had already roped off the scene. They, they were pointing to the what they believed to be the decedent, and they wanted me to come in and rubber stamp it. I said, no, nah, bro, that ain't happening. 
I, I have to go in there and evaluate and assess. I'm not saying that the conclusion of the police officer was way off kilter, but I certainly wasn't comfortable with it. And what that wound up being is I did not go into their criminal scene. And I had to go back and tell my captain at the time that I made a call. And there was a little bit of a rift there. Like, hey, how come the fire guy didn't do what he was supposed to? And my my position was, hey, I wasn't comfortable. We had we had this intersection, this boundary that you were talking about. We we couldn't we couldn't reconcile. And I I put that into this situation because I really, really think it's important to, again, illuminate what you're already saying is you have this very, very accelerated situation there are your law enforcement counterparts there's great synergy between law enforcement and fire and first responders across the country and one of the the missions for i know for me as a paramedic is i want to help out my brothers and sisters in law enforcement and help make the situation better so you have all these external pressures that are there where it gets right at the meat of what you're talking about, Bob, where these mental shortcuts, hey, if I see this, then that. Well, if you see a situation where law enforcement is painting this picture of, in this case, excited delirium, well, maybe you could rush to judgment. And I'm not saying that this is you know right or wrong, and I'm certainly not going to armchair quarterback the legal system in, in this case either, but just know that, wow, this is not a simple situation. And it happens over and over and over again for firefighters because they are entrusted to do so much. They're medically trained in a variety of different areas. And to bring that tool to the table and apply it at the right time when the stakes are that high is, is not an easy job. And when you see your law enforcement in a struggle where you have to draw a conclusion based on an evaluation that you might not be able to do in a normal settings, it just it's I mean, simply put, it's super difficult. And and I just don't think that that's something that the you know, the general public really, really gets their arms around and. And I, I just, I really like the way you frame this challenge of the intersection between the boundaries of law enforcement and, you know, first responders, firefighters, providing medical care. Again, what most people don't realize is that you pick a firefighter, a fire department across the country, mostly what they're doing is not slaying the beast. It's not fighting fire. It's providing some level of medical support uh in 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 a multitude of different ways and this is just one of those ways and it just you know as i sit back and i think about okay what what would this change for me as a paramedic and i'm not sure it would change much i think you have to be conscientious and stay on top of your training i think you have to be intentional in wanting to be competent and being good at what you do and you have to accept certain risks from A to Z that some of the decisions that you make could be could be tested. I think that what what I think what would be a mistake for me as a paramedic is to completely reexamine the way I treated patients and completely get away from my training in order to avoid a situation like this, because I think it could work just in, in, in an opposite way, right? Now, all of a sudden, 
you could be putting yourself in jeopardy for inaction and not action. So I, I, I hope that this doesn't have a sweeping change across the fire service, that the message that resonates is that, okay, I got to be intentional every day when I come in. I got to stay on top of protocol changes. I got to do what's in the best care of the patient. And I'm not saying, I'll make this really emphatic. I am not saying that these individuals didn't do that. They believe they were doing that. And I think that you have to do things in your mind that are in the best uh, best interest of the patient. They're within protocols. And again, you know, stay on top of all those things. And I think that that would be how I would move forward. But again, you know, and, uh, in the news, I and you and I, as we give our experiences and our our thoughts on on articles like this, it, it easy for me to say I am not out in the streets. And someone could be like, yeah, whatever, dude. You know, you 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 were a fire chief, and it's been a while, and and I, and I can completely uh, lean into that and capitulate to that. Again, I'm just trying to think through it now. What would I do, and how would it change me as a practitioner? And um, I would hope it, it it wouldn't change much. I would still want to be intentional and still caring for the patient, and just know that sometimes um, that some things can go wrong, and and hopefully this will be one of very few in the in the millions and millions of calls that firefighters run each and every day. Yeah, Jeff, I agree with what you're saying. And you know, maybe it's because of the name firefighter, but I often forget how medical focused the job of a firefighter truly is. Before this article, I had no idea a firefighter could sedate someone, regardless of a paramedic or EMT license. And I realize now that's a silly thing to say, but it was my first thought as someone from the general public. But I wanted to ask, other than first responders second guessing their split second judgment, what do you guys believe the domino effect of this may be? When it reaches this level of public discourse, you have scrutiny over every piece of the process. And law enforcement has been in these these public crosshairs for a number of years, for a long time. And that, that we saw really taking off body cams and transparency and how calls are being managed. And there was this idea of a catastrophic effect to law enforcement. And I can't speak for the changes of it. It didn't seem catastrophic to me. Certainly uh, added this element of transparency that was both good for, for public trust in, in law enforcement, as well as uh, helping support the split second decisions that law enforcement officers have to make. Uh, General President Ed, Ed Kelly of the IAFF was quoted in one of the articles by CBS News on this story, really criticized the criminalization of split second medical decisions. And he says, you know, sets a dangerous chilling precedent for pre-hospital care in our country. There are far reaching consequences. We'll address at a later time, accuses this of being politics that's driving prosecution, which it may or may not be. I, I'm not sure. Uh, forcing firefighters and paramedics to second guess decisions, public safety is compromised. And I agree with him in that statement. I mean, I agree that when your split second decisions are challenged and when you reach this point where it re- you know, it's you're criminalized for, for your work, that, that has to send a chill to everybody who has to make these decisions, very difficult decisions. I mean, one of the things about ketamine administration that a medical provider should be more appropriate to at least comment on, on, on why this is so important. But as a paramedic, when you're trained in your dosing, you know, the difference between 140 something pounds he was and the 200 pounds that these firefighters projected him to be is significant in the dosing. 
But how do you train somebody other than a, who works in a circus to figure out how, what somebody weighs? You know, I, you, I, I know what I weigh and I'm like, you look kind of similar to me. So I'll adjust up and down a little bit based to that. But like, that's the measuring stick that we have. We don't have the luxury of a, of a hospital setting to have them on a bed that tells you how much they weigh, you know? So I, I'm not sure where exactly I was, I, I was going with that. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how this would affect me, you know, and the decisions that I would make. And I would, I would be mortified if this happened that a patient died you know, under my care, uh, which happens by the way. I mean, it's like patients died under my care and I was accused of, of my, my act as a paramedic having led to somebody's death. I was accused of that as a paramedic. And I, I was mortified by that, uh, by that notion, the difference between it, it coming, you know, back on me in some way, or I, I don't know that it would have, I just, I suppose it could have led to, to a criminal conviction was the findings of the medical examiner the medical examiner's findings exonerated any chance that this had anything to do with our care as EMS providers to this, to this gentleman who was riddled with cancer and died as a result of his cancer. And the reason why they were mad at us is he fell over. He went to stand up. We went to go try to assist him. He was standing up before we were prepared to transition him from couch to gurney. And he goes to stand up on his own and has a sinkable passes out and falls falls to the ground and accused us of, of, of that, of causing the fall that led to his subsequent death. Very different than the case that we're talking about here, but not so much in, you know, accusing EMS of being a contributing factor to somebody's, to somebody's death. I equally would be mortified if I didn't treat a patient for a sedation who was at risk to themselves and something bad happened to them or ha bad happened to law enforcement or someone else in this, in this sequence of care as a result of my hesitancy to administer a, a sedation medication that I've been trained to do that the protocol says I should have used, right? So the, these cases are so nuanced and they're so difficult and the decisions that our providers have to make in the field are split second. I've reflected on this a lot over the last 10 years as every law enforcement, you know, involved shooting gets scrutinized to the, to the every detail, you have a nanosecond as a police officer to decide to shoot or not. More often than not, the bad person has already decided whether they were going to shoot at you, but you have to take in all this information and control your blood pressure and your breathing and decide in a nanosecond of whether shooting someone's appropriate or not. And that decision will get be scrutinized for years and years and years. And in the court of public opinion, in some cases, you're you were wrong from jump street. You have to prove your own, your own defense, not, not necessarily in the legal system, but in the, the court of public opinion, this is now the second national case that's been at th this intersection of a law enforcement call and a, and a medical call. The other one were, was the Memphis firefighters. You might remember who were terminated. They weren't charged criminally, but they were terminated for, for failure to render care to Tyree Nichols in that case. Another case of this intersection between communication between law enforcement and paramedics that may uh, affect the judgment of the paramedic in their treatment. Imagine for a second, Samantha, you're, you're, you have this 
ability or you're a paramedic and you can do sedation and these law enforcement officers are wrestling somebody to the ground. They're there already because it came in as a law call. They called for medical because they needed help. You're showing up later. You're watching this unfold in front of you and a law enforcement officer is telling you like sedatum, sedatum whatever it is that, that they might be saying. Like, how does that affect your relationship with law enforcement, your decisions as a paramedic, whether you should or shouldn't? do it. So I think if if what needs to come out of this is we take another look and we recognize this tension that's occurring between a law enforcement and a medical call and we train better together. We, We have this conversation about what does it look like when this situation happens? How do we have conversation between, you know, police and, and paramedics and understand each other's profession a little bit better? The conflict is predictable at the boundaries. In my opinion, that's my theory. And we should be putting extra attention to that. Training in the fire service, probably a topic in and of itself. Probably a topic in and of itself. I'm very worried about the erosion of quality of training that's occurring, particularly in busier fire departments. Not, you know, not, not suggesting that had something to do with this going on here, but I'm just telling you, we ripped through some training, some continuing education hours when I was a paramedic. And we weren't as busy as in some cases we are now. What does that look like? That probably is worthy of an examination. And the chief from Aurora put out what I thought was a a good statement that really spoke to things that are being evaluated as a fire department, which we should be doing. And we, in many cases are doing, uh, it's just not public, but maybe that's the difference too. Maybe we need to be more open and transparent with the community because again, second second national case involving this this case of criminal action against uh firefighter paramedics and in memphis uh terminated from their job for a failure to act i mean the 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 increase in scrutiny to the type of work we do particularly at this intersection is going to increase so we need to be ahead of the game on it i want to i want to jump in here too and and offer a a couple of standpoints your question samantha is what do you think is going to happen as a result of this and i I agree with Bob. I think training is, is something should be, although it is difficult, it's, it's yet another thing for firefighters to do. The chances are probably great that more training could at least assist in the situation. And then you can get to that point of, does it impact policy? Should there be a change in policy in these types of situation, whether it be for delirium or for other types of medical conditions that are in and around when you have this intersection of law enforcement and firefighters. And and frankly, the result of that further examination could be, you know what, actually the policies are sound. This is potentially a a one-off, which this is where I'll bring into, you know, Bob brought this up in the beginning of of the segment. He talked about heuristics, these shortcuts that, that we have, right? That you know, your, your dome, your brain only has so much, we only have so much capacity. So we come up with these ways to get to a conclusion even quicker so we can make our decisions and then move on. Well, there's something called the availability heuristic where, you know, you think about this high profile case and the one that you mentioned in Memphis and wow, should I change? I'm a paramedic. I'm going to operate differently now because of these two cases. Well, but wait a second, maybe, and this is an anecdote, but I'm, I'm going to throw it out there. There's probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions and millions of these cases where there's an intersection with law enforcement 
in fire response and they don't end in something like this. So are we rushing to change our behaviors based on two yes, high profile and yes, in this political environment that we are in, but does it mean that we should change? And I'm going to submit maybe not. And, and that's where I think that if you, if you maintain as a professional, and again, easy for me to say, and, and, I, and I can totally appreciate it, you know, armchair, I'm just trying to think about myself. What would I do? I'm not sure that I would do anything different. I'm not sure I would do anything different. You know, I, I want to, I think, I, I think most firefighters want to be really, really good at what they do. I think most firefighters have compassion for people and want to help others and they want to work well with law enforcement and they want to be known as a man or a woman who is darn good at their job. And so it will be doing everything you can to fulfill those goals. And, uh, but, but there could be, or there might not be a policy opportunity here that could improve the situation. So it's a, uh, it's certainly a thought provoking and it's a, uh, it's interesting discussion. I, I, my heart does go out to all of the individuals involved here. This is super complicated. It's super just hard to pull apart. And, you know, it just is it's tragedy all the way around the board for the, the firefighters that were impacted, the police officers are impact, impacted, of course, the patient who who died as a result, the entire fire department, the fire industry. You know, there's a lot of people that are going to take a look at this and be like, uh, you know, they're going to scratch their heads and, you know, should I should I make a change in what I do and, and what's going to happen to me now? So. Um, it's it's definitely something that I'm, that I'm glad we're talking about, and hopefully people at least you know give it some thought. I pulled out Samantha out of this article conversation from a policy perspective, Jeff, and that's an excellent point in Colorado that has to do with excited delirium in general. And this is going back to October of 2023. And the this particular article the headline is Colorado may soon bar police and coroners from referencing excited delirium and lethal force cases. So they're questioning this diagnosis of excited delirium and death cases. I mean, so it's like it's being discussed at a policy level in Colorado. And this just kind of adds another Colorado experience. But let me make a, a point. Excited delirium, it has a protocol and the paramedics, according to their defense, followed that protocol. So whether excited delirium should or shouldn't be in it is a different conversation of what was uh, the training and the rule on the ground at the time that that was being applied in this particular case. Thank you for sharing that bit, Bob. And to reiterate what Jeff said, our hearts go out to everyone involved and impacted by this case. If you'd like to learn more, the link to the article that we discussed can be found in our show notes. But thank you, Chiefs, for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And if you have a question for the panel, please reach out to us at fireheadlines at wfca.com and let us know what's on your mind. We'll see you back here next week for more Fire Headlines. Thank you.